Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. Welcome back to the Impact 360 Institute podcast. What does it mean to be an American Christian? And how does Christianity relate to politics? Those are just a few of the important questions we're going to be talking about today. And I'm really excited to have Bruce Ashford with me. He's written a brand new book called Letters to an American Christian. Now, Bruce is professor of theology and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's also provost there. Uh, He's a regular contributor to lots of outlets, including Fox News Opinion, featured on National Public Radio, USA Today, Heritage Foundation's Daily Signal. And he's the author or co-author of five books, including, again, the one we're going to be talking about today, which is called Letters to an American Christian. So, Bruce, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for having me on. It's a real joy. Awesome. Well, first, let's just start back at what led you to write this book right now. Yeah, you know, so back about three or four years ago, I just began to notice in a special way just how toxic our public discourse is in the United States. And in addition to how toxic it is, how, you know, tribalized and polarized, I just began to reflect on how difficult it is to be faithfully Christian in the political realm in a secular age. And so I wanted to uh, jump in and just try to provide coaching and helping for young people or for Americans in general who want to be faithfully Christian in the very difficult and challenging social and cultural context that, that we're facing right now. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you actually, this is kind of an interesting book, the way you wrote it. Say a little about kind of how you designed this book um, to be read and, and kind of how you approached it. Yeah, so this book was a fun book to write, and I mean for it to be read in an easy chair or at the beach, all right? So it's a series of letters that I've written to a hypothetical college student who has just become a Christian and is majoring in politics and journalism, double majoring, and I'm coaching him to avoid the secular progressivism of his professors at this private university, but also the secular conservatism of his parents and grandparents. And so I'm coaching him, and we have a lot of fun along the way in each chapter. I try to show how a Christian can reason from the scriptures and also just from their life experience and to give legal and philosophical rationales on an issue. And so I get a a way of reasoning and hopefully a way of persuading other people to a certain point of view, a Christian point of view on a given issue. That's great. Yeah. And it's a quick read. You can buy the book and check it out. And honestly, you can jump around in some ways after a certain, you know, so you can head to different chapters. So definitely encourage people to check this book out along the way. But, you know, Bruce, as I think about this and I observe kind of the public space right now, and as I talk to Christians, I generally kind of get one of two responses is one, hey, we should just preach the gospel and forget this whole politics thing and leave that, you know, we just need to disengage and, and hit eject there. Or, it becomes this overarching driving thing that's all consuming in a way. And so maybe just step back at a broad kind of 30,000 foot level and, and talk about, you know, how should we engage or disengage from politics as Christians and what's kind of a biblical framework to understand that? Yeah, you know, good question. Back, back to context for a moment. We live in a secular age where people tend to view Christianity as implausible, even unimaginable. You know, how could you possibly believe what the Bible teaches about gender or sexuality or 
or whatever. And so when that happens, I think sometimes Christians tend to lose heart and just sort of slouch into withdrawal and to quit engaging publicly on the issues. Or on the other hand, they charge into a kind of panic politics where we lay aside our Christianity and behave just like everybody else in the public square. But as believers, we can't think about it that way. I want to talk about religion and politics for just a minute. Religion, the Bible says, is not to be defined as the worship of a a supernatural deity. It's something much deeper and broader than that, because all people are religious, including atheists. And if you want to find somebody's religion, find their God. If you want to find their God, find whatever it is they've ascribed ultimacy to, whatever they've absolutized. And it might be the God of Jesus Christ or the Allah of Muhammad, but it also might be sexual freedom, wealth acquisition, gaining power, um, success, the approval of other people, you name it. And whatever they've ascribed ultimacy to, there you find their God and their religion. And the Bible says that once we've done that, we've made a God out of something that we embrace it in our hearts. And in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, the heart is the central organizer of human existence, all right? And so we ascribe ultimacy to something, we embrace it in the depths of who we are, and it radiates outward into everything we do, including our politics. So you can't separate religion and politics. And so as believers, what we ought to do is to allow our Christianity and to allow the Christian scriptures to radiate outward, not only into our public beliefs and words and statements, but also into our disposition and demeanor. We should be markedly different from the world, not only in our beliefs, but also in our disposition and demeanor. Absolutely. And I think that's really important for Christians to remember. And I love how you frame that in terms of what's ultimate, because the passion I think we're seeing today on lots of different topics and issues is where people have made good and important things, ultimate things, and it's driving them honestly beyond where I think they intended to go with some of the intensity around certain conversations for sure. But, you know, one of the things that, you know, I love about your book is it covers so many different issues. Um, But there's a a couple more framing issues I want to talk about before I get into some of the particulars. And you talk about the fact that culture is more important than politics. What, What do you mean by that? Yeah. So, you know, I think sometimes when we talk about culture or cultural engagement, a lot of people in their minds think about political activism. And I want to challenge us to think more broadly about it than that. We need to take the broad view and play the long game. And by taking the broad view, I mean something like this. Listen, if you look at patterns in the Bible and patterns in history and you kind of put those together, you can see that God created different kinds of culture. All right. Art and science, politics and economics, scholarship and education, marriage and family, sports and competition, business and entrepreneurship. You have all of these different kinds of culture. And if I could draw upon a great theologian and politician, actually, from the Netherlands from years ago named Abraham Kuyper, Kuyper used a spatial analogy. And he said that each of these different kinds of culture is like a sphere, all right? And that each sphere has its own center and its own circumference. So its own center or its own reason for being, you know, art exists to promote aesthetic excellence and often beauty. The sciences exist to advance knowledge in the natural world. Government exists to achieve justice for the various individuals and communities under its purview. The church exists to disciple people and center their lives around Christ and the gospel. So each type of culture has its own reason for being, its own center, but each one also has its own circumference or limits to its jurisdiction. So the state is not supposed to be reaching into, for example, the life of the church, telling us who can be a member and who can't, who can be a pastor and who can't, what we can believe and what we cannot, 
right? And then vice versa, the church is not supposed to set itself up over the government. You know, the Roman Catholic Church or the Southern Baptist Convention or Assemblies of God should not set themselves up in a coercive or inappropriate relationship with the arts or public universities or the government. All right. So, so each type of culture has its own reason for being, its own center, its own circumference. And God takes individual Christians and Americans and gives each of us a unique collection of cultural spheres that we're involved in, right? So I'm not very involved in the sciences or the arts, but I'm very involved in education and politics. So each person who's out there listening on the podcast right now, I think there are three questions that you can ask and answer in any given cultural sphere in which you find yourself operating, all right? You can equip your kids with this before they go off to college or while they're in college, all right? So the first question is, what is God's creational design for this aspect of culture? What, what does God want from it, right? The second question is, how have sin and idolatry corrupted and misdirected this sphere of culture? You know, how is sin, how is wrong thinking twisted it? And then the third question is, how can I untwist what's been twisted? How can I draw upon God's word and upon my ability to reason and upon other sources? How can I draw upon those things to untwist what has been twisted? Those questions are pretty easy to ask, but they're not always very easy to answer. We need to work hard to answer those questions. And if we do, if we have Christians who are operating faithfully in all of these different spheres of culture, then the combined, I think, power of that is so much more powerful than if we throw all of our efforts into short-term political activism. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really, really helpful. And I, I'll really like the way you frame that. I love those three questions. And one of the things that we need to recognize at our cultural moment is that if we're a Christian, we have to be able to bring our worldview to bear on that. And that's that framework that you were just talking about, which I think is really important. But I want to back up even a step from there, because a lot of times when people come to the political discussion, they have good intentions. But as we know, in politics, and especially economics, good intentions don't always lead to good outcomes. But what what, biblically speaking, or what would be a few of, of your go-to passages that kind of ground, I guess, your theology of political engagement that kind of show that Christians should be engaged in politics, but also how they're to move towards politics? What would be a couple of those passages that, that come to mind? Yeah, so I'll pick two. Before I mention those two passages, I would say that the, the overarching storyline of the Bible gives a, a, a really a powerful argument that religion— a person's religion is the deepest influencing factor in a person's life. And whatever a person's true religion is, and whatever it is or whoever it is they truly worship, it is going to radiate outward into every aspect of their life. Okay. And so that's the first argument that, I mean, there's no sphere of culture in which we can suppress our religion and it not come out. Right. If we've absolutized something, it is going to affect us. But, I mean, you've got the, the passages of Scripture, such as when they came to challenge Jesus, and they said, listen, here's a coin. It's got Caesar's inscription on it. Should we give this to him or should we not? And they tried to trap him. And Jesus came back to him and said, ah, there's a coin, and it's got his picture on it. Give Caesar what's his and give God what's God's. And what he was saying he was not saying, hey, listen, in the political realm, you know, political leaders are in charge there and Jesus has nothing to do with it. So in the political realm, listen to the politicians or the king or the emperor. But in the religious realm, listen to God. Jesus was not saying that. He was saying something like this. Listen, God ordained government. 
and the government taxes and it provides roads for you and it, it upholds the law. So give the government what is the government's. Pay your taxes. Be an orderly and a good citizen, but do not ever give a political leader or a king what is due to God alone. And that is, is a wholehearted embrace, full obedience. You give that to God alone, all right? And then a second passage is Roman chapter 13, where Paul is instructing the church to be submissive to the government. He's saying, listen, don't flout the government. Don't be an anarchist, that God put the government there for a reason. God gave the government the sword, right, to protect you from people who would attack you from without and from crime within, you know. The early church understood very well what Americans may not understand, and that is that Jesus Christ is the cosmic king. And the early church did not give allegiance to political leaders. And what Paul was saying to them, he's having to remind them, you can't be an anarchist. You know, it is true that Jesus is, is the real king and Caesar is not, but you have to obey the government. I think we have the opposite problem in the United States. I think we tend to find ourselves in a full frontal embrace with whatever political leader we think is the Messiah at the moment. And we need to be reminded of the opposite, that Christ is king. Christ and Christ alone is king. Occupants to Caesar's throne or to the U.S. presidency, or whatever, come and go. But Jesus remains forever. Absolutely. And I think that's really well said. So great way to frame that biblically, both from the narrative of Scripture um, and the true story of reality, as well as some of those particulars from Jesus and Paul as he unpacks those those kind of ideas and gives us some principles to begin to apply. And so as we dive into some of the, I mean, such a great book. Um, and again, my conversation today is with Bruce Ashford and talking about his great new book, Letters to an American Christian. And there's lots of fun chapters in here. We could talk about all sorts of good stuff. But before we get there, sometimes Christians ask this question, or at least it comes out, is do some issues matter more than others? You know, because I think this is one of the things that I think even millennials and Gen Z are trying to figure out is, okay, there's lots of different issues that I should care about, justice, and there's lots of ways that could get expressed. And we'll get into some of the particular topics. But do some issues matter more than others in how we, whether we vote or elect or do policy? And, and what do you think about that? Yeah, good, very good question. Let me start by giving a couple of extreme examples that everyone can agree on, and then we'll get in the weeds a little bit more. So I think, you know, <laughs> if you compare question about, say, uh, slavery in the past, uh, which was a very, very important political issue in, in years past, or something like the pro-life issue, whether or not we should take the life of an unborn being, a baby in the womb. These are just really important issues of the deepest level of importance because they strike at the heart of what the Bible teaches about human dignity. Then on the other hand, if you have a sewage referendum, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, the Bible doesn't really speak all that directly to whether or not you should vote for option A, B, or C at the local sewage referendum. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, there definitely is a sort of progression, issues that are more important and that are less important. If you want, could you want to work through one of those issues? Like take yeah, human yeah, dignity, yeah. take human dignity, and apply that to a couple of different questions, like life, yeah, and racial justice, and a couple of those different ones, and just kind of begin to see how that principle. And then we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, that's excellent. So, the, you know, I think human dignity is one of the most important, if not the most important, political issue globally and in the United States. And if, if as Christians we can speak powerfully to human dignity, we can transcend the partisan divide to some extent and speak a good word into a bad situation. Human dignity speaks to any number of issues. I'll just mention three. And I'm going to argue that unborn lives matter, black and Hispanic lives matter, and white lives, and then also that undocumented lives matter. All right. And so no matter where you are in the political spectrum in terms of particular policy responses, 
the Bible's teaching on human dignity can inform us in the way we approach those topics. So let's take unborn lives matter for just a moment. Um, we can give Christian reasoning to support that, distinctively Christian reasoning. Let me give some examples. The Bible teaches in Genesis chapter one that human beings are creating the image and likeness of God. And that teaching says that as human beings, our great dignity is that God made us like him in some manner. Now, it's also our great humility that we're not God, but he created us like him. And that applies to every human being no matter the color of their skin or whether or not they've been born yet. Another teaching is like Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments. We're told that we should never shed innocent blood. Okay, another teaching would be John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that if God loved the world, the whole world, enough that he would shed his blood on our behalf, then that's a great dignity that ought to be recognized in all of humanity. So these are some of the distinctively Christian types of reasoning mm -hmm. that make us conclude that we shouldn't shed innocent blood in the womb. Now, there are also types of reasoning that are not distinctively Christian, legal rationale, medical, and so forth. Let me work through a few of those, and I'll focus in on the Roe v. Wade decision. Roe v. Wade was, first of all, bad for babies, all right? I mean, I think that's obvious, but medical technologies now let us see the horrific pain that's inflicted on a baby when the baby is aborted. It is a great irony in history, uh, not a great in the sense of good, but a great in the sense of huge irony in history, that a baby in a womb in America enjoys far less legal protection than an endangered species of bird in a forest outside of your house. Abortion is also bad for women because it encourages sexually predatory and morally irresponsible behavior on the part of men. Abortion is, uh, Roe v. Wade is bad for men. It marginalizes men. Legally, a man has zero say in whether or not a woman aborts the baby that he helped to create. Abortion is bad for the family because it teaches children in a family that if you encounter a problem serious enough, you can use lethal violence to solve it, even if it's against a family member. It's bad for justice and equality, and this one is very important. And one of the great ironies in American history, just after the 1960s civil rights movement, when it looked like we had turned the corner and basically said to our fellow citizens, you cannot take an entire class of citizens, black Americans, and deny them justice and equality. Everyone gets justice and equality. Just a few years after that, 1973, five black gown lawyers of the Supreme Court decided that, in fact, there is an entire class of humans, unborn humans, who will not receive justice and equality. And so just to conclude, there's more reasons like this. I just want to conclude to say that Roe v. Wade was something like Marianne Glendon, law professor at Harvard, put it this way, that Roe v. Wade was like an environmental disaster in the moral ecology of our country, of our nation, in that it numbed our collective consciences. It taught us to deny our most basic moral intuitions, to protect the weakest and the most vulnerable among us. And it, it even causes us to engage in linguistic gymnastics so that we can mask what we're really doing. So we, instead of referring to it as a baby, we refer to it as the products of conception. So human dignity then speaks and says that unborn lives matter. It also says that black lives matter. Now, politically, I disagree with a lot of the Black Lives Matter platform. It's a more socialist in nature, and I'm, I'm not a socialist. I think socialism suppresses society and oppresses it. But there is one aspect of that platform that I think we ought to say and speak on behalf of and act on behalf of, and that is that black lives matter 
every bit as much as white lives or Asian lives or whatever other type of life. And we ought to fight to make sure that our fellow citizens recognize the full dignity and worth and value of our black neighbors and our Hispanic neighbors and so forth. And so black lives matter, undocumented lives matter, no matter where you stand on the borders, you know, and I think we ought to secure our borders. And by that, I just mean we ought to know who we're letting into our country and who we're not. We need to know who's coming into our country. No matter where you stand on that, we can treat people who are undocumented with dignity. They're creating the image and likeness of God. It shouldn't be treated like animals or machines or morally reprehensible people. And so the Bible can really shape us and help us speak a good word in a really bad moment in our country's politics. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think that's very helpful framing and the particulars for the unborn. But I want to come back to a couple of things you, you said around Black Lives Matter, which I think is really important for people, especially Christians in the next generation, Gen Z, because Gen Z will be the most racially diverse generation in American history. And so they're going to have an opportunity to do some things there that I think are going to be pretty amazing. And I'm hopeful about that. But you know, sometimes Christians, when the conversation about racial injustice, you know, in the broader picture, they're like, well, should you preach the gospel or should you care about justice? Well, the answer is yes, of course. I mean, we, 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 do, we do both. I mean, we, we can, you know, John Sun Street likes to say we can walk and chew gum at the same time and we must do so. But on the particular issue, obviously people are like, oh, individual racism and civil rights advancements and all that. And there has been in that regard. But you also talk about cultural racism. Say a little bit about that and how that presents us with some opportunities and challenges, kind of where we're at right now as a country and how Christians can engage that better than we have in the past. Yeah, good question. So, you know, the Bible teaches in Genesis chapter three, it makes very clear that sin is individual, that individuals commit sins. Adam and Eve sinned against God. But then it goes on in Genesis chapter four through 11, and really the rest of the Bible to show that sin is not only individual, that sin, uh, when you have a society full of sinners, sin coalesces at the social and cultural and political level to warp and twist our social, cultural, and political institutions. And so legal institutions, educational institutions, businesses, all of these can be and are warped by human sin. So when we apply it to the sin of racism, it makes sense that when our society has had quite a few personally prejudiced people in it across the years, that, that personal prejudice coalesced at the social, cultural, and political level to warp some of our, our institutions. And so Christians should be the first people to recognize that institutions can be warped by sin, and we should be the first people to help untwist what has been twisted, to help redirect what's been misdirected. And, you know, I, I think it's just very unhealthy to set up the verbal proclamation of the gospel against Christian action in the world. Those things are supposed to come together. When somebody asks me, well, which is more important, to preach the gospel or to, to do good deeds? Well, they're both important. I mean, which is more important for me to share the gospel with my neighbor or to refrain from having adultery with his wife? I don't know. They both seem very important to me, right? So in the Christian life, words and deeds are meant to come together. Not every word is accompanied by a deed. Not every deed is accompanied by a word. But when people look at Christians as a whole, we should be speaking the gospel regularly and obeying the gospel and its implications regularly. And I think that's really what your podcast is about. It's about how we can speak the gospel and then how we can obey it in all of these different spheres of culture. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things, you know, in the context we live in today, you know, you talk about some other chapters in your book, you know, there's no safe spaces in the real world. For example, that's, that's one of the chapters. Say more about what you mean by that, because that, that also affects how we're able to engage in some of these topics 
um, in, in big questions that matter. Yeah, you know, there's a big push right now for there to be safe spaces for professors and universities to give what is called trigger warnings to let students know the professor might say something or describe something that could upset them. And I do think we want to, when we address sensitive issues, we should address them in a in a way that is sensitive to other people so that we don't cause unnecessary pain. But one of the negatives of this sort of movement is that there's a move now to shut down free speech and to say, listen, if somebody is saying something that we think is ugly or that we disagree with, they ought not to be able to speak in a public setting. So they should be able to be shut down in a public university setting or in a public forum, you know, town hall meeting or that people's voices should be muffled. And as Christians, I think we should be very suspicious of this. The gospel is freely given and freely received, right? And we want to be free to preach the gospel. The problem is, here's the deal. If we allow people to shut down speech in the public square in the United States, genuinely hateful speech, and there's some really hateful speech, let's just say white supremacists. If we can then shut down their speech in the public square, the negative of that is it sets a precedent that speech can be shut down. And I can guarantee you that in the next 10 and 20 years, as our society turns more and more against historic Christian teaching on moral issues, especially on gender and sexuality, that the next thing that's going to happen is that our Christian speech is going to be viewed as hate speech. That when we preach the gospel and talk about condemnation and salvation, that's going to be viewed as hate speech, that God would condemn somebody who rejects Christ. When we talk about historic Christian teaching on gender and sexuality, that's going to be viewed as hate speech, and it's going to get shut down in the public square. And so I think we ought to do everything we can to make space for speech, even if, unfortunately, it's hateful speech. The response to hateful speech is not to shut it down, but to speak against it and show why it's wrong and hateful. And in fact, social progress in America has often ridden in on the back of free speech. Martin Luther King was allowed to speak his mind, even though there were many, many Americans who hated what he had to say, racially prejudiced Americans. But it's because he had free speech that we could make the progress that we made in the civil rights movement. Yeah, and that's super important because, you know, you even talk elsewhere in the book about the distinction between, say, political correctness, which is not helpful to anybody, versus public civility, which is you know, that kind of that true sense of tolerance where I extend to the others the right to be wrong and I'm going to extend, you know, dignity and respect to you even though I disagree with you and let's create space for us to actually talk about this. And I feel like we've lost that. I feel like we've lost the ability to talk to each other. I think we, a lot of people are just talking past each other or, hey, if you're not with me, get on out of the way. Otherwise, I'm going to run over, <laughs> run over you and it's become a power um, as opposed to seeking truth, which, which I don't think helps anybody or serves anybody. In the end, um, there's so many good things we could talk about. A couple more questions. One, um, you have a chapter called um, I Pledge Allegiance. And so you address kind of different types of nationalism. Because I think sometimes Christians, once they get a broader view of the world, there's a good sense in which they feel sometimes uncomfortable about kind of our American kind of, hey, I'm an American. So should I feel bad about that? But this is God's providence. This is why I'm here. How should I relate to the country that I'm in? Unpack that and that tension that we feel. I know first we're kingdom citizens as Christians. This, this earth is not our home. 
But unpack that in terms of the particularly American context in which we live as people try to navigate patriotism and and different aspects of that conversation. Yeah, that's right. There's a big debate right now about nationalism, and people can mean a lot of things when they say nationalism. So let's talk about some different, just three different types of nationalism. The first type of nationalism is what some people call civic nationalism or could just be called patriotism. And that is just in a healthy way, having a, a love and a respect for the nation that you live in. Right. And so that can be a good thing. There's there's nothing wrong. And I think everything right with having a healthy respect and love for our own people, our fellow citizens that can be warped, however, if we begin to love the nation more than we love Christ. And if we are willing to do things on behalf of our nation that break God's law or that set the nation up as more as us having more affection for our nation or for a nationalist political leader than we have for Christ himself. Okay, so there's civic nationalism, and that can be healthy. There's ethno-nationalism, and that is when an ethnic group within a nation wants to set itself up as more valued than other ethnic groups within the nation. We see that. There's white nationalism, there's black nationalism, and some of those people are pretty loud right now. And I think we ought to reject ethno-nationalism completely. In a democratic republic that has multiple different ethnic groupings, we ought to seek justice and equality equally for all groupings. Then a third type of nationalism, economic nationalism. This is a more complicated debate about what's best for our country economically. I'm not going to get into that too much right now. I get into it in the book. If you want to read about it, you're welcome to to buy it and read it in that chapter. I think what's really important right now in the discussion on nationalism and many of our, our other national debates, like you mentioned a moment ago, is for us to be civil. Civility takes great strength. It is a weak leader and a weak person whose arguments have to be carried by means of insults, you know, to insult and mock your opponent, to tell partial truths about them. That's weakness. As Christians, we need to operate with strength. I think Jesus is our model. He combined truth and grace. Truth is the truth content of the Christian faith. Grace has to do with our demeanor, that we can have a gracious disposition, not a weak disposition, but a disposition and a demeanor in which we are willing to recognize that the person we're arguing with is creating the image and likeness of God. Truth without grace makes us political bullies and jerks. Grace without truth makes us political wimps and non-entities. But it's that truth-grace combination that Jesus had and exemplified and that Paul exemplified that if we exemplify it also, we can speak a good word into a bad moment in our nation. And maybe we can break society's ability to classify us easily and therefore dismiss us as the hypocritical and bigoted special interest arm of any one given political leader or political party or political ideology. No, that's really important. And I think that's a crucial part of loving our neighbor well and speaking the truth in love as you're talking about. And it's so important for us to embody that, be prepared to talk about it and be able to engage others about it. But before I let you go, one last question, I want to make it real practical. You know, people sometimes wrestle with, okay, you know, what do I do when it comes time to vote? How do I, <laughs> what do I do? Because there's imperfect candidates. I think it was, you know, Russell Moore who said, uh, you know, if you're waiting for the perfect candidate, then only if Jesus of Nazareth shows up on the ballot, then then you can go there. But how, what are some just kind of practical wisdom? Like, how do you encourage Christians who care about all of these things to figure out 
who they should vote for, and, and does anything ever disqualify someone in your mind or biblically? What are, what are your thoughts on that? I know there's different opinions on it, but I was curious what, what your thoughts were. Yeah, I think voting is probably going to become more and more difficult in the United States as we're seeing the rise of a, a post-religious left and right to some extent. Not entirely. I don't want to speak comprehensively about that, but I think we're going to face increasingly difficult choices. You know, our founding fathers never envisioned a situation in which we have two major political parties. They didn't want that. And our two major political parties exist and they depend upon each other. And right now, they need each other. They, they hand power back and forth. And they right now are polarized and tribalized. And we're making enemies and demons out of everyone on the other side of the political aisle. Both sides are doing that. And so we're in a tough situation sometimes. And there won't be a perfect candidate. There never will be a perfect candidate. But uh, we might have candidates increasingly who just really don't line up with our view as Christians. And so we're going to have to make tough choices. And my recommendations are this. You need to read widely. Don't sit in your home and listen to your favorite talk shows on the radio or watch them on the TV over and over and over again. Don't be discipled by any one media outlet. Take your news and your opinion in from multiple media outlets and ones that disagree with each other so that you can make a wise and discerning choice. Number two, while you're watching or listening to or reading political opinion, make sure that your mind and heart are captivated by the Bible's narrative of the world more so than that media outlet's narrative of the world. Every media outlet has a narrative of the world. They're going to tell you what they think the evils are, Then they're going to tell you how we can be saved from those evils. Just make sure that the Bible's narrative is more primary than any of these media narratives. And so take your news in from multiple, multiple sources as you're making your decision on who to vote for and make sure that God's revealing word is the one that's informing the way you think through those opinions and those events in the news cycle. That's for starters. I think that's such a helpful word because obviously there's so many different people out there trying to persuade us and different networks, as you've mentioned, who have a certain narrative, whether that's your CNN, your Fox News, MSNBC, whatever that might be, diversify that so that you can kind of see the different sides, make a good informed choice, but most importantly, think biblically about that because we do have the opportunity in our country to participate in the process as citizens, as part of our stewardship of the influence that we have. And so we need to take that seriously, but then attempt to navigate this challenging cultural time and political time with both grace and truth, as you've so helpfully talked about in your book. And, you know, and if you're listening to this podcast right now, you're, you're walking around the neighborhood or you run on the treadmill, driving around the car. I hope what you're hearing is, is the need for us to bring all of the Christian worldview to bear on all of life and to, again, reject this Sunday morning only Christianity for an hour or two a week and then this split between kind of the sacred and the secular all of life, look, if Christianity is true, then it applies to every area of life. And we need to bring that to bear politically, culturally, educationally, and everything else in between. So it's just a great opportunity and a reminder to do that. So hopefully this will spark some good conversations for you and your home or your friends or your coworkers. But again, I want to commend to you the book, Letters to an American Christian by Bruce Ashford. Really helpful book. It's super readable. You can, there's lots of short chapters on all sorts of important conversations that I think you'll benefit from. And so, Bruce, I just really want to thank you for writing it. And I really want to say thanks for being on our podcast today. Thank you for letting me come on. I love what you guys are doing in Impact 360. It's been a joy and a real delight to have this conversation. And I hope that somehow the book and, and the podcast will serve you and your important network of conversation partners. Hope it'll serve you well.
For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live.